Welcome to the Hot Stove Society Radio Show on Cairo Radio. My name is Chef Tom Douglas. Actually, my name is Tom Douglas. Uh, my profession <laughs> is being a chef and restaurateur, and uh, we have uh, many businesses here in Seattle, some of which are open, some of which are in the process of becoming open, and some of which will never open again. Uh, I am a proud owner of the uh, Sirius Takeout in Ballard at 52nd and 14th Northwest. If you want a landmark, if you're ever trying to find us in the brewery district there, if you come across the Ballard Bridge and look at the Amazon Go store, that the end of the Amazon Go store is 52nd. Just take it right there, and we're one block east uh, of right there in Ballard. Of course, uh, downtown, where I've been working uh, mostly these days, is at Seatown slash Rub Shack slash Etta's. Uh, out there on the patio, shucking oysters and making fish fry and uh, doing lots of fun things down there. We got Copper River salmon for the first time uh, right now. Uh, it is just a, it's a pleasure to be out in the Pike Place Market in its hustle and bustle. And I'm joined by my pal, Chef Thierry Rotrol. Hey, bud. Hey, Tom. How you doing? Happy Friday. Thank you. And uh, yes, I'm uh, the proud owner of Luc in Madison Valley. And uh, Lula downtown, but Lula is closed, so... We won't talk about that for now, but Luke is definitely uh, booming and, uh, you know, still at 50%, but it's definitely doing what it's supposed to do as a neighborhood restaurant. We open Tuesday through Saturday, 4.30 on till 9 o'clock. And uh, it's definitely, uh, you know, it's so nice to see people back. Uh-huh. I mean, I'm not, I can't, uh, I'm not in the restaurant yet, but um, I see all the reservation, all the names and Definitely warms my heart put to see ca- people in that restaurant. Put cameras up so you can see from your computer. Here we go. That's, uh, yeah, I have those down at Sea Town, and I can see when there's a line. I said, "Why aren't you helping those people in line?" I have to text. I text Gretchen. I'm, oh, that must the be last terrible thing crew, for her. The last thing my crew is going to want is me overing over everybody. Yeah. Hey, yeah. you know what? Uh, you know what? I heard you say there, and uh, it's going to. We're going to touch on this later in the show is that it's doing what a restaurant is supposed to do what a cafe is supposed to do and sometimes right. people think that's just business and it's really not it's it's a community center no. right it's 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 a place to meet and gather and share you know a birthday or share just a, a friend rekindling so i love right, the way right. you said that it's doing what a cafe is supposed to do not just in business but in life uh so pete right. wells uh, wrote an article about that we're going to talk about that later you know in front of me pamela has brought in our producer has brought in some my first spring morels that I've seen, and then also some English peas. And I think that she would like us to speak to how we would use these and why they are special together. So I know, Chef, that you can handle that. Daniel Warvin is from Firmdale Farmstead Cheese, talks about his cows and his Italian-style cheeses. Pitch-perfect French fries at home. I watched... Uh, I was watching Dear Evan Hansen, and it reminded me that um, that dude was in Pitch Perfect, right? He was one of the a cappella singers, <laughs> Ben Platt. Did you know that, Pamela? Uh, no. <laughs> yeah. He was like opposite Anna Kendrick in Pitch Perfect. And so, uh, that, uh, anyway, Pitch Perfect. There we go. Founders of Fast Penny Spirits, Holly Robinson and Jamie Hunt, will visit us to teach us about Amaro, how you make it. And uh, we're going to taste theirs. And, of course, we're going to wrap up the show with our Rub with Love tasty trivia challenge and apparently they're going to be our our fodder today the meat that we get to chew on uh, because they're rookies right sherry we get to take advantage of the situation i i, I just i just hope that it's true what i heard and pam was tired of doing it so maybe the question will be maybe the question will be easier yeah maybe so all right my taste of the week we love to get into what we've been out and about doing uh and 
I was, you know, uh, on the new Dahlia Bakery menu, Dahlia Bakery is going to open uh, June 9th, it looks like. And on the new menu, we have a toast section. And I just picked, you know, I've been eating this at home now. I'm on my second jar of CB nuts. And Pam, would you look them up? Are they over in Port Townsend? They're, they're I thought it was closer to Polsbo, but would be yeah. would be Polsbo, Port Townsend, yeah. somewhere over there. And of course, we're not, they're not growing peanuts here; they're getting peanuts from somewhere else. But they've been roasting them, and I started buying their shell in shell on peanuts in the grocery store. They're a good late night snack, you know that for me. And then uh, I started buying their peanut butter, and they came out with one. And I don't know if it's new or not, but it's so delicious. It's just peanut butter with sea salt, and it's got that. You know, Chef, when you and I, we have butter so often it's unsalted, right? And you, you forget. Correct. You forget. And then all of a sudden you put a little slab of salted butter on a baguette and you go, oh, my God, that is so good. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, yeah. Yeah, oh, right? Oh, you just put, oh, I just use unsalted butter and put a little bit of finishing salt no, on top, a little salt flake. Of course. I would do that once in a while, but there's something about the salted butter that's just nice. And so oh, yeah. uh, the CB nuts, salted sea salt peanut butter. I think is my taste of the week. I put it on our pecan flaxseed bread because we're testing different breads for the Dahlia Bakery opening. Uh-huh. And so uh, what a combination. I got to say, that was awesome. What's your taste of the week, Chef? That sounds great. Yeah. Um, tree spinach, which is a type of uh, spinach that uh, is not commonly found on the market, but you do find it at farmer's market with, uh, um, you know, you buy it in a small bag of probably a, a quarter round, a quarter pound or something like that. You know, and it's, it looks like... Um, a leaf of like a basil or or not not quite that big uh, of a leaf, but it's really delicious. It tests a cut between grass and spinach. Uh-huh. So grass being very um, more very grassy of a flavor, like very like a you know leafy kind of idea. Mm-hmm. And then so I cooked that with um, I made a soup. Cooked that with some rib red rib sorrel that I had in the garden again from the same thing from the backyard. I had the whole plot of it from last year that came back big leaves shaved everything and then made a soup with that uh sorted some onions sweat some onions add the, the uh, sorrel add the tree spinach and a little bit of uh, chicken stock or vegetable stock if you wanted to keep it veg and um you know just made a wonderful soup with that blend the whole thing up at the end and add a dash of uh, sour cream on top of it oh my god that was so delicious so you know, sorrel soup is something that people probably don't know or don't do a, a lot, but it's really delicious. Well, it's, it was a very famous French dish. How yeah, do you, how do you keep it from turning gray? You just take the take the sorrel, blanch it for one second. Oh, okay. Or, I mean, more, more than one second, three seconds. Blanch it, cool it off, and then put it into your soup. Uh, after you drain it, you put it into your soup after you sweated some onions, put the uh, sorrel in there, add a little bit of white wine, Add a little bit of stock, cook it down, a dash of cream, blend the whole thing up, and you've got this wonderful sorrel sauce. Mm. That soup. would work on a, a nice piece of grilled salmon, too, rather than just soup. To- oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what I had last night for dinner, I mean, a piece of grilled king sorrel salmon. Is, yeah. yeah, sorrel is fresh and springy, so use uh, it. All right. Let's talk spring when we come back. It's time for morels and peas, one of the most classic combinations I know of as a chef. Uh, right here in the Hot Stove Society show, Cairo Radio, 97.3 FM. We are back in the kitchen here at the Hot Stove Society virtual kitchen. 
slowly turning into a live kitchen again. We've had our first couple of uh, uh, live classes with people in-house here. It's super fun. We've limited it to 12 people, and then after that, we open it up online. But um, really fun to have some live bodies in our studio here. Uh, the springtime pleasures of morels. My name is Tom Douglas, and I love English peas and morels. How about you, chef? And I'm Thierry Rotero, the chef in the hat, and I actually love morels and peas as well. I think it's a combination of perfect season timing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like I also love leeks or ramps or anything of that, you know, young allium um, spring family, mm-hmm. uh, young spring allium. Uh, so you chives. like that with them? With them? Yes. Yeah, okay. I, I like the little bitiness uh, because when, when uh, alliums are fresh and young like this in spring, they have a little bite to it. And I like that little zing that comes because the peas are sweet and the morels are woodsy and very uh, earthy in some ways with a light smoke. And um, you put that in combination with a bright little onion or, or young spring onion or, or you know, ramp. anything of that family. Yeah, but ramp and uh, ramp, yeah. And so you get this bite that gets combination, great combination with all those different three flavors. I think it's a beautiful spring flavor to me. And, and all you need to do to that is saute them separately and then add them together, a little dash of stock or a little dash of uh, wine if you want, and a nugget of butter, and you've got this gorgeous sauce to go on so many different things. It could be chicken, it could be just vegetables, or it could be a nice piece of fresh halibut you just got from the market. I mean, uh, it could be Copper River salmon. I mean, it marries very well. It's a base for a, it's a well balanced base. Right. So it goes it goes across the board really really nicely. And of course, from there you can go you know add bacon. And of course, everything is better with bacon in some cases. Uh, that's one of the cases where bacon becomes also a good product because it, especially if it has a light smoke to it, it adds even more smokiness to the morel. Chef, can I go back on that whole bacon thing? Because I think you kind of misnomered yourself or something. Everything is better with bacon in some cases. <laughs> <laughs> so, so which is... Yeah, it's, kind of, it's, kind of, it's kind of... I realized when I said everything, which I don't like that word because it's not true. It doesn't go with everything. But so, it goes with a lot of things. <laughs> here's, here's one of my pet peeves about the peas. And uh, the morels are what they are, right? Uh, Pamela, you said right. you were, when you were shopping for these... They were $80 a pound right now, and that's because it's the beginning of the season. There's not much out there. And the season hasn't produced them. It hasn't been as friendly to what morels want to grow. And uh, Chef, yeah. remind me, are morels a rain and then sun mushroom? They have to have the Correct. rain. And we have had very little rain this spring, right? It's been too dry. Yeah. We're not going to have a good mushroom season if this weather stays the way it is. Right. Um, yeah. I just came back from the pass on the, uh, uh, from the farm on... Tuesday morning, early, and it was 92 degrees in Prosser on Monday when I was there. Oh. But on the pass, when I was coming over on the pass, it was snowing and, and uh, 36 degrees. So <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the morels are up there. Maybe the morels might come up, up there, yeah. So, um, so one of my pet peeves about English peas, I guess I have two real ones, is I have yet to figure out a way t- to salvage these beautiful green pods that we end up composting. There's so much growth there. It's like a little bit like fava bean pods, right? Although uh, I have but, taken to liking to blanching fava bean whole 
and then putting them on the grill and and eating the whole thing, right? Cooking cooking right. them a little bit more well done and eating the whole pod. What have you figured out something to do with the pea pods? And then secondly, everyone wants to overcook their peas. Uh, they put they blanch right. them first, and then they put them in their risotto, and then you know. Those peas take 30 seconds to cook. If you just stir them in the hot risotto, they're going to be cooked by the time you sit down to the table. Uh, so right. how do we stop people from freaking out? Because they're so used to canned peas or frozen peas that, that are just massacred, right? Uh, a fresh one should have a little bite. Not, not crazy, but a little bite. And then give me an idea what to do with these pods. Well, I, I think that the confusion in peas is the when do you pick peas, number one, uh, I know people buy them already picked, obviously. But to me, uh, what I don't like is in a, in a pound of peas and you're going to buy on the market, there's going to be peas that are not grown yet and they're going to be peas that are starchy and old and already too... too overgrown, ripe. yeah. Mm-hmm. Overgrown, yeah. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's where the confusion is in the peas. It's really annoying. I did that yesterday, actually. I was doing that. We bought some peas and we were shelling them. And it's like you get the whole spectrum in those peas, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that's really bad when you want to cook something. Uh, let's say you want to do raw peas in a salad. Well, because if you have young, tender peas, they're perfect to go in a salad. They don't need to have anything done to them. Just put them in a salad and eat them as is. But the problem is, is half my, 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 half my, my harvest or what I bought is older and starchier. So those have to be blanched. And you know, there's no other solution because you want to get rid of that starch. It's not pleasant to eat. It's too hard and, and also it's too starchy. So mm-hmm. you want to blanch those. Mm-hmm. Then you can process those in the, in the morel sauce or whatever. Um, I just think it's... Okay, so that... is a difficult part. Yeah. But the pods the pod itself, you blanch them really well and you mix them with, for example, spinach and more peas. And you can blend the whole thing up and have a wonderful pea soup. You just so have they to do, strain it. Yeah, you have to strain it. They, so they do, you have blanched them up to make pea soup. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All you do is add flavor. You know, basically when you, when you cook the heck out of those pods and you blanch them and you uh, blend them, what you end up is a puree, obviously lots of fiber, so you have to strain it. But you do have a little bit of, you definitely have a strong pea flavor mm-hmm. that comes out of that, which if you're making a pea soup, or pea puree, you want to add that flavor to that. That just enhances the flavor. So, you know, that reminds me. Sometimes I grew up just loathing split pea soup. You know, those the dried peas and that. that and right. when you just described, when you said blanch them a long time and puree, it was just reminding me of split pea soup. I've matured a bit, and I can actually get down a few spoonfuls of split pea soup because now because of the ham in it. Because probably. of the ham in it, exactly. <laughs> Everything's better what with the, everything's the, better with ham sometimes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What about what about uh, what was I going to say? What about lentils? I mean, lentils are also not, yeah. you know we're talking about morels and peas. You could do morels and lentils, and that's absolutely delicious. Mm-hmm. You know, it goes really well with a, if you're doing let's say a pork shoulder or roasted or or some sausage. You know, that goes really well with that. Yeah, That's a good idea. I'm going to get some lentils going. And last week we had some of our first green, uh, fresh garbanzo beans, which were delicious, too. Those with sausage. You know, like I said, I've matured. When I turned 60, I started liking things like split pea soup. And I don't know if it's because I don't have any teeth left. (laughs) Because you don't have any teeth. Yeah. You don't have any teeth left. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, let's go back to the morels. One thing. Give me a plain morel. 
dish. I mean, uh, you love morels more than I do because I like the so, texture, but to me, they don't have a ton of flavor. Uh, so, so I'll tell you what I did. Okay, we only have one minute, Chef. One minute. Tell you. A couple of days ago, a friend of mine, Clara Savage, brought me some, some beautiful morels and she picked. And uh, I uh, cut them. I rinsed them off. I always put them in a little bit of water first and then put them on a paper towel and dry them up. And then I did, um, I had a, I looked in the fridge. I had a baked potato, I had a little piece of bacon, and I had a piece of ham. So I took both the bacon and the ham, <laughs> throw it in the pan, throw it in the pan, toss them around, throw in the morel, toss the morel around, and then I had um, the baked potato. I fried the, the baked potato. I sliced the baked potato and fried it uh, on both sides so it was really crispy. And put the whole ragu of uh, morel on top. Oh, man, that was so delicious. So, so delicious. That, I'm gonna Extreme. call. I'm gonna call that out right now. It's like, how much of that morel did you actually taste other over the bacon <laughs> and the ham? Lots, gorgeous. Oh, Are you kidding? Okay. Me? Mm-hmm. Oh, delicious. Up next, we're gonna talk with the Ferndale uh, Cheese Company, Ferndale Farmstead Cheeses, about his cows. And then in the next segment, we're going to stretch this one out a little bit because it's so interesting. Next segment after that, we're going to talk about the actual cheeses themselves. But I want to know what makes a great cheese. What kind of what time of year? What kind of cow? All that sort of thing. On Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. And we're back in the Hot Stove Society kitchen on Cairo. My name is Tom Douglas. And I'm Terry Rotiro, the chef in the hat. And we are joined today by Daniel Wavrin. He is the owner of Ferndale Farmstead. Is it Farmstead Cheese, right? That's correct. Yes. Yes, thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And he's, uh, we're going to find out a little bit about what makes his cheese special. Uh, we're going to talk, uh, just so that you know as listeners, uh, the next segment we're going to talk about his actual cheeses. But Terry and I wanted some time to... Uh, jump into what makes uh, his cheese special. Pamela, what drew you to the Ferndale Farmstead cheese story? When I looked at their beautiful website, their logo or tagline says, from seed to cheese. And I had never thought about the totality of creating the agricultural environment to produce the perfect milk. And Daniel comes from... Uh, I think it was three generations of dairy farmers, so he knows his cows. He knows his cows, and he probably knows his seed too. <laughs> and so he's yeah, got. The he knows. Whole... He knows. He knows the ground too, which is very important. And the cow is on good ground. Yes, <laughs> and and so I think we better let him tell us about it now. All right, Daniel. Yeah, absolutely, you guys nailed it. It's it's all sort of one cycle. So where does it begin? When you want to start a little well, dairy, where, how do you begin and what do you have to look for? What kind of cows, what kind of grass, all that stuff? I think, well, if you look, if you look at our approach, at least, and ours is different. Everybody has a little bit of different uh, approach to farming, but ours really starts with the seed. And that's kind of why we started with our tagline, uh, seed to cheese. We start with literally planting the seed of grass in the soil. So for us, that's sort of the beginning of our process of harvesting sunlight, concentrating the nutrients in the soil and then harvesting those through the basically physiology of the cow, the body of the cow. And then using cheese making techniques, we can concentrate that even further into a durable product that um, you can enjoy on your table. So uh, for us, we start with the seed. Our our whole motto is uh, the seed in our soil to the grass in our field to the feed for our cows which we use to make the cheese for your table. So 
our whole thing is really um, based on beginning with that that very first seed and controlling basically the whole process after that. Not to sound like a control freak, but uh, <laughs> as cheesemakers, we probably are a little bit, to be honest. Right. So you don't have a lot of choices to make before you even have your first cow, right? So you say you, you plant the grass. And what kind of research did you have to do? Uh, for, for example, like we always hear, Terry, about the lamb on the Brittany shore, right, eating the wild thyme and how that affects the flavor of the meat and, and uh, you know, the, the cheese in the area and blah, blah, blah. Daniel, what, um, like, did you think about planting mint along with your grass? Or what's the process of deciding what the flavor profile that you're looking for in the seed is? Well, it's a great question. And our agronomist uh, here on the farm is in charge of kind of determining which seeds we select to plant each year. And we use a, a mix of seed, grass seed basically, mix of timothy grass and rye grasses primarily form about, I would say, 90% of the crop that we grow here in Ferndale. And we farm about 600 acres of that here in Ferndale uh, to feed the cows that live on our farm. So farmstead cheese is, is kind of a special segment of artisan cheese that says that that cheese is made right where the cows or the goats live. Mm-hmm. It's on the farm and it comes directly from that place. So it's a great chance to experience terroir and sort of the, the bounty of a particular area through cheese. The grasses that are harvested here near our farm, which is within a two and a half radius from our creamery, we farm those 600 acres and bring that grass to the cows that live on site. And their diet's made up of a mix of of grasses, but also grains. We even recycle the whey from the cheese making process as a protein source and wetting agent in their feed. So it's a carefully and meticulously constructed diet that my father as a veterinarian and nutritionist puts together to specifically answer the requirements of the animal's physiological output. Um, so we pick the, the grasses based on their starches, their proteins, all of the, the scientific elements that will then be put into a dietary program uh, to orchestrate the caloric uh, intake that the cow needs, basically, using a variety of different feeds. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. monocrops are not a real sustainable or effective means of providing nutrition for animals. Like, we don't want to eat just salad all day, um, or at least mm-hmm. not just lettuce, let's say. If we get creative with salad, now it becomes a whole thing. But if it's just romaine lettuce, that that's not a well-rounded diet. And the same is true for cows. Cows don't just want to eat you know, one type of grass that's grown out in the field. So we plant a variety of grasses and then we feed them a variety of feeds other than grass to ensure that they're, they're, all their needs are being met. So a uh, quick question of the, Daniel, the, uh, the cows, are they roaming or are they indoor? A combination of both. So um, on our website uh, or on our farm, you can visit and you'll see a combination of both. In the Pacific Northwest rainy environment, on dairy farms, active working dairy farms, it's very common to use something called tree stall barns. And the cows live in the barn for 70, 80% of the year. Um, and then for the summer period, essentially, maybe May through October here in Ferndale, the ground and the grass is firm enough to where their hoofs won't destroy 
the right. the grasses and they're allowed to go out and the rain won't mat their coat and cause them illness. So it's a combination we use here in the Northwest. It depends on the season, but every cow gets about a month of vacation per year. And that during that time, <laughs> their nutrient levels uh, and their nutrient requirements drop. They're, they're kind of the opposite of me. I go on vacation and gorge myself. They go on vacation and they kind of go on a diet and they go out on the grass and they get, get to enjoy themselves um, sort of on a, on a different section of grass depending um, on the time of the summer. So yeah. we do use a combination here on the west side. And, and then you do uh, milking twice a day or once a day? Twice a day. Uh, some farms do three times a day, but um, in my life, we've always uh, used twice a day milking with cows. And that aligns sort of with our general approach with, with agriculture and dairy farming in general, which is sort of a, a more casual approach, not such an aggressive production uh, forced approach. We find that our cost of production and our animals and our general health and happiness is higher if we take sort of a more measured approach. So twice a day milking is very common, morning and night. We begin at uh, six o'clock at, at night and then six o'clock in the morning. Um, so that milk is fresh every day for us to use for the cheese making process. So Daniel, uh, okay, wow. we got the feed, we've got the milking process. Uh, now you have to pick a, a breed of uh, uh, cattle to have on your farm. What's going to make the cheese that you're desiring to make at the end of the day? This is a great question, and we use a mixed breed herd using Jersey cows and the black and white Holstein cows. Very mm -hmm. commonly on dairy farms in the United States, you'll find the black and white cows, and those are called Holsteins. They produce a lot of milk, but it's a little bit lower in fat and protein, the components we're interested in for cheese making, than Jersey cow milk, the brown cows that everybody loves. Uh, that everybody thinks makes chocolate milk, but they do not. <laughs> Thanks for clearing that up. Yeah. The Jersey cows make white milk just like the other cows, and they make it actually much more rich in fat and protein than many other cows. So we use those in our cheese milk to ensure that you're getting the super rich butter fat and protein to make cheese with every day. So we're quite spoiled as cheese makers. We get to kind of I talk to the farmers and tell them, oh, we want a little less fat or we need a little bit more protein. And they can change over time the ratio of the breeds in the herd to fit our cheese making operation the best. Hmm. Interesting. Well, and, uh, and then the, the part that nobody likes, the one bad day part, I'm sorry, Terry, uh, the one bad day part. It's okay. Uh, you know, we just harvested four of our chickens who stopped laying eggs and have new chicks that are starting. And uh, we also, our farm is over there in dairy country in eastern Washington. So we see the meat trucks, you know, the cattle trucks come and go from the farms. And I, I would imagine there's a lifespan of... Uh, Uh, dairy production that you can deal with at the cheese house? We have about a minute. Absolutely, yeah. The cows we uh, see on our farm live many years, seven, eight, nine years, up to even 10 years. And my father always said, when I asked this question, that uh, when they retired, they changed jobs. They changed careers. When dairy cows retire, they become beef cows. Right. And that's, that's a change in their career, but it's a, it's a full use of the animal. And that's something in cheese making that we see going back even to Europe. In Italy, they use every part of the animal, every part of the milk. It comes from being poor. It comes from needing to 
sustain ourselves. And so the same is true on the farms. We use the whey to feed the cows. And at the end of the day, that cow is, is, is uh, totally used back into the nutritive system, which is our world. Right, exactly. And it's just, like I said, it's the one bad day. Can you imagine spending your whole life out there on the grassy plains of, uh, of uh, Bellingham and that whole area up there, Ferndale, and then you have a bad day? And that's, that's just the way it is. <laughs> That's the way we all we all have that bad day. Saying. I think we all go yeah. at some point. Yeah, and something eats yeah. us like worms. <laughs> Up next, let's talk about the actual cheeses that you make. Uh, we're talking to uh, Daniel Wavrin from the Ferndale Farmstead Cheese House up there in Ferndale, Washington, and we'll be right back on Cairo. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, ninety-seven three FM. We're back in the kitchen here at the Hot Stove. I'm joined by Chef in the Chapeau, Mr. Chef Thierry Rotoro. Absolutely. Welcome. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Yes, indeed. I'm Tom Douglas, and we're speaking with our, or continuing our conversation with Daniel Wavrin of the uh, Ferndale Farmstead Cheese Company up there in north of Bellingham. And, Daniel, we got the production side out of the way. You know, we've talked about the, the grass that you have to grow, uh, when it grows, uh, how the cattle uh, survive on that grass. You know, they like a salad bar rather than just a one-lettuce a one approach. Uh, we talked about um, milking twice a day, the richness of the dairy, the type of uh, breeds that you use, both Jersey and Holstein. And uh, and then uh, we talked about their one bad day. Let's talk about what we get to enjoy about that as a consumer, uh, the cheeses themselves, and then all the thought process that went into these cheeses and, and um, where you got started down that road. Is that a family tradition, or, or, or are you kind of finding your own way? We are certainly finding our own way on our cheese path. The cheese. That was a pun, you know, Daniel. Uh, <laughs> it was. It was a good one. In fact, we, uh, we, we appreciate those in cheese. Sometimes they just, they go right over our head. We're used to them throughout the day. <laughs> um, that was a good one. And I would say, you know, a lot of the, the philosophies transfer. So a lot of the reasons our cheese is special, I think, are the reasons our farm is special. And that really, I think, boils down to passion. We, we really are passionate about everything we do on the farm side. And that's the culmination of 30 years of experience and really focusing on trying to do what we're doing on the farms the best we can. And uh, my father and my uncle are largely responsible for that. And I've absorbed some of that information, which we've discussed. But um, the cheese is really my passion and, and where I can, can speak a little bit more freely. But certainly the, the formation of that passion comes from my father and my uncle. It comes from watching them and how they think about farming and dairying and how those two things, the land and the animal play together and how they can balance each other when uh, thought about consciously and and correctly. So Mm -hmm. there's a very beautiful kind of sustainability aspect to the farm side. And again, the creamery works with the farm to cycle those nutrients through the soils, through the grass, through the cows and and back essentially. So well, the passion that we understand from that side is is what we apply to the cheese side as well. But that's only been happening now for about five years, six years. Here in June will be our anniversary um, since we built the creamery. Isn't that uh, you know a funny story? I kind of uh, wow. fell into your cheese. Uh, so to speak, uh, last year, about this time after COVID started, we were 
opening up our kitchen on wheels out in Ballard and, you know, opening a new serious pie out there that we could deliver and people could pick up. And I was at the Ballard market and there was this log of Ferndale mozzarella that um, if you bought the ball of the Ballard Market pizza dough, maybe it was Shoreline Central Market, you got a free log of the Ferndale mozzarella, or you got it for like $4 or something like that. Yeah. And that was the first time I tried that mozzarella that we now use hundreds and hundreds of pounds of uh, every week. So Yeah, I'm so glad that that happened. And, and, <laughs> nice you know, promotion. That's been <laughs> it's been what's happening. We, we sort of, yeah, exactly. We rely on our, on our grocery store partners, our co-op store partners, and our restaurant partners to sort of spread the word. We're, we're a family company. We don't have a big marketing budget. It's myself and my wife that are going out and doing store demos and talking to customers at restaurants and, and trying to get the word out that we're here. We make yeah. Italian-style cheese, and we actually specialize in fresh mozzarella. In the Pacific Northwest, we're really one of the only operations uh, on the farm that's making fresh mozzarella for pasta, for pizza, for all kinds of people and and food. So uh, I'm very glad that you stumbled across that cheese. And we're so lucky to be working with conscious restaurants like yourselves that care about where their food's coming from and care about where their dollars are going at the end of the day. Um, because there's all kinds of options for cheese. There's uh, Italian cheese that comes from Italy. And there's Italian cheese that comes from Wisconsin. And there's Italian cheese that comes from Washington. Right. We were very lucky to be instructed here in Washington by a group of Italian gentlemen that came specifically to our farm to teach us how to make these cheeses. Nice. So that's a very special part, I think. And they also uh, went a step beyond that in that they allow us to buy the cultures and the rennet to make these recipes directly from them in Naples. So we ship all of our ingredients across the ocean to make these cheeses in the most authentic way possible, but to offer a more local source for these staple ingredients. You know, a funny end to that story about me is I, I when I bought that the, your cheese on sale or on special free log with a pizza ball, I donated all the pizza balls to the food bank and kept the cheese. <laughs> oh, there you go. We do a bit of that, too. We, we do a bit of donation to the food bank from time to time, but um, we try to avoid it. And, yeah, exactly. and certainly as the word has gotten out, it, it's been less and less. We still do a little bit here and there at the beginning and the end of summer. But people are finding out that, that we're here and that we make everything from fresh mozzarella to a cool little cheese called scamorza that we hang on a rope to age, as the Italians do. Uh, we bring that rope from Italy, too. And we make aged cheese wheels like Asiago and Fontina, which are big wheels. And you can find wedges of those in all types of grocery stores um, around the Puget Sound. Chef Terry, have you ever made mozzarella before? Nope, but uh, I've made home cheese, but I've never made, I mean, uh, just fresh cheese mm -hmm. curd, but mm -hmm. I've never made mozzarella, the actual mozzarella, I've never made it, but I love it. I mean, I think mozzarella is... Super cool, especially in the summertime. You don't want to get the, the stove on. You just slice some mozzarella with beautiful ripe tomatoes, everything room temperature, drizzle some beautiful olive oil, chop some chives on top of some tarragon, and then with some basil, and then make a beautiful sliced baguette toasted to go with that. Oh, I don't need anything else. I can eat that every single meal. Every single meal.
Uh, oh, you nailed it, Chef. Yeah. You nailed it. I feel like Raffaele is back with me next to my side here, teaching me how to eat again. That's that's exactly the way to use it. Daniel, need, we only have a minute or so. Need, Go ahead, Terry. You just need to make sure then, for example, the mozzarella is not freezing cold. Right. Especially exactly. Because that's, to me, that's that's where people don't, they don't appreciate or they don't expand on the appreciation for, for cheese. When you, when you have a cold mozzarella, there is nothing that has as much flavor as when it is room temp. I mean, once it's room temp, it's beautiful. It gives you that beautiful aroma. And, and it's also, you drizzle a little bit of olive oil on there, and it just totally combines the two together. Where if it's cold, you don't have the same pleasure. You have one is sticking to the roof of your mouth, <laughs> and it's cold cream, and the rest is olive oil. <laughs> Hugely important. That's the that's the voice of experience speaking, Terry. You're a hundred percent right, and all of my mentors stress the same thing. These cheeses, Daniele, are to be enjoyed at room temperature. So please do. Exactly. Yeah. And do you make? I have one more question. Okay. Do you make butter? No butter at the moment. We don't make any burrata or any butter. Although we do get these requests quite often. So maybe one day. Because with all that milk, I can think of one thing. You probably have kids around the neighborhood. You could bring in and just twirl that milk around just to because when I was a kid that's what I used to do on the farm I used to do on the farm I used to think it was fun the first few weeks but after a while you're like wait a minute the grandparents are just taking totally abuse of me here I'm 10 years old and I'm making making that butter and that parat just like a Frenchman always feeling abused Child labor, labor churning. Yeah, we have not tried that here yet, but, you know, we never know. Uh, if you want to go out and uh, check out Ferndale Farmstead uh, Cheese Company up there in, in Ferndale, Daniel, what, uh, what do people do? Give me a call. Go ahead, go to our website and uh, shoot me an email or call the number. They're both connected directly to my cell phone. I'm available all day, every day. Uh, we're here on the farm for you, and we'd love to have you come up, especially in the summertime. It's beautiful. We've got Mount Baker sitting behind us on a sunny day. Come enjoy a little bit of Whatcom County. All right, there you go. We've got a whole hour of deliciousness still to go. Uh, This is Tom Douglas, Terry Rocho in the Hot Stove Kitchen here at Cairo Radio, 97.3 FM. And we're back. It's the Hot Stove Society Kitchen. Thanks for hanging through that long break. I'm Tom Douglas, chef owner of several of Seattle's uh, fine restaurants, and uh, I'm joined by Chef in the Chapeau. That's right, Mr. Douglas. I'm here again. Happy to be here. Terry Rotiro, the chef in the hat of Luke in Madison Valley. And uh, looking forward to seeing you Tuesday through Saturday from 4.30 to 9 p.m. Inside, outside, covered, not we take you. <laughs> we'll take you. Absolutely. In the next hour, uh, what Americans, uh, what we uh, have missed uh, by about restaurants while they've been mostly closed over the last year. Tips for French fries at home. Uh, owners Jamie and Holly explain how to make Amaro from the Americano. Is that the name of their brand? Americano uh, oh. Amaro Company. And lastly, we're going to play uh, at the end of this hour, the Rub with Love Tasty Trivia Challenge. And uh, looking forward to that as usual. So, Pamela, tell us why the um, Pete Wells segment kind of stoked your fancy. I think his closing line, what we've got, restaurants are what we've got until somebody invents a better, more enjoyable way of eating and drinking while maintaining the social connections that keep cities moving forward. I don't think restaurants get enough credit for what we do to keep us all 
face to face and in love and sharing uh-huh. ideas. It's that a uh, critical part of what makes a city feel fantastic. Part it's of the social fabric for the sure. The social yeah. fabric. Mm-hmm. And so having people be reminded of that in the article, it was that which we treasure almost more than the food. <laughs> well, that's right. essentially I, what he is I saying. Think, I just want to uh, jump in real quick and say we didn't identify who Pete Wells is. So we all know who he is, but he's a food reviewer from the New York Times. Chef Terry. What I was going to say, he also uh, mentions the fact that it's not about the food. And I agree. I, I think that uh, I've always said that people go to restaurants. You know, many us chefs would like to believe and they come just for the food. <laughs> but it's not the reason people go to a restaurant in most cases, especially in this country where more people go to restaurants, I think, in this country than anywhere else in the world on a, on a, on a very routinely basis. And I think that people go out to restaurants because they like to be in a social environment. Yes. Not because not because you're serving uh, a burger or because you're... I mean, there is that, obviously, that comes with it. And there is some of it. But I think a big, big case, especially in the cities, a big case of the restaurant's purpose is to get people out of their condo or their apartment and get them out in the street in a social system, you know, and... and in the social environment, you know, and, and I think that's that's why it's so important to still have restaurants and bistros and bars and whatever, all that all that stuff that get people out of their four by four home uh, to get them out and get them, uh, you know, in a social environment. I would that's take. Uh, I guess said. I would take a little bit of issue with both of you on that, just in the fact that. I go to restaurants often because I'm hungry. I'm, I'm ready for a meal, right? And I'm out and about. And honestly, I do. And I would say more than 50% of my meals I eat by myself. And whether that's at the Bay Cafe, having an omelet in the morning out there at Fisherman's Terminal uh, because uh, I didn't feel like cooking at home or or stopping at Wendy's for a, a, a sausage biscuit or going to the International District for a boa pho because I'm hungry. It's, I'm ready and I like the uh, I like the opportunity that restaurants offer of the variety of food. I've always been a big variety eater. If you look at some of our Latino workers over the years, they will eat the same thing day in and day out. And I think that's an ethnic scenario that's not just Latinos. I think if you were to look at East Indians or French, maybe or Italians French, yeah. or whoever, I think um, my palate is so demanding of variety. I don't think that is typical around the world. No, you're definitely a special case. And also, <laughs> I'm talking about Americans. Also, no, 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 it's true. Yeah. You, you're a special case, and you also, because um, I believe that the more you eat or the more you taste, the bigger the demand is because it gets expanded. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like if you're always eating, uh, let's say, steak and fries, your palate's going to stay in one area. But if you start eating many different types of food like you do all the time, your palate is expanded and demands more than, uh, you know, some people who don't have an expansion on their taste. It demands more uh, than I'm willing to make at home even, right? Because I don't have right, all those right. ingredients all the time to kind of just right. jump into the fridge. I'm, I agree with you that people do come out for the food. I mean, I was, but, but I think that it is extremely important to most people that the social part that takes care in restaurants or in cafes or in bars, what you find in those environments is definitely intertwined in your social life. And, you know, I think, I think, I mean, we've seen it in the last year. People are freaking out if they can't go out to restaurants. I mean, they're just, they're losing it. After a while, you know, they, it's novel idea to make your own bread and do your own food for the first three months. 
And then after that, people are like, okay, fine. Now where do I go eat? Yeah, because every time you have to do your own dishes too. (laughs) Exactly. That's enough of that. Can I just go out and eat like I used to do? You know, like twice a week, go out to a restaurant and... You know, order on the third day, you know. It's like, Last night I was so. meeting the owner of the Metropolitan Grill here in downtown Seattle, and I was going at 8 o'clock. And, of course, um, I was coming from Seatown where I had been working, and, and I, literally I had to figure out what to do. We closed Seatown at 7 o'clock. And I had to figure out what to do for that hour and not just drink myself to death before I actually went out to dinner. Because I haven't eaten at 8 o'clock in so long. So long. Such a typical restaurant time, right? Yeah. I've been so long. Yeah. So then, so I had to do that. And then I get there. You know, Seatown's been closed for an hour. There's an hour wait at the Met Grill at 8 o'clock on a Thursday night in downtown Seattle. Yeah. An hour wow. wait. And it wasn't like everyone was, you know, at separate tables. I mean, they were at separate tables, but they have the plexiglass, so they don't need to. They had a pretty full house, I'll just say. Uh, Probably nothing against the law, but pretty full house. And there were businessmen in the back in the private rooms having big dinners like there used to be. And uh, things people do crave the return of being able to have this social gathering. I, I agree with you, but I'm also just hungry sometimes. Did you have a steak? I had a big piece of beautiful king salmon and asparagus. Oh, Jim, did Jim buy, or what are they charging for a plate of king salmon? Uh, I'm not going to get into that. It's an expensive <laughs> restaurant, and Jim did buy. So, <laughs> so the, the, But one of the things I was pleased about was that uh, my, my plate of salmon, I ordered you know, the baked potato or fried potato or whatever. I had the asparagus and, as a choice, and I actually got like 20 spears of asparagus. It was such a generous portion, and while it's expensive there, the portions are, are very large. <laughs> Do you know Absolutely. what the retail is going to be for salmon this year? Uh, I've been seeing, we just got the n- number that uh, King to us, Copper River King, is going to be $40 a pound to us. in oh. the ra- That's in the round. So once you cut it up and skin it or whatever it is you're going to do to it, it's going to be about $60, $65 a pound to us. So that puts yep. it at thirty two fifty a portion or so. Or uh, Terry's Restaurant, that would be six portions. But... Uh, <laughs> I, I can't believe I can't believe you make only one out of that. No, about about eight ounces was once you get rid of the bones and the skin and everything else. So, honestly, probably thirty bucks a portion. So we would have to sell it for ninety because you got to pay the labor, you got to pay the dishwashers, you got to do all that stuff, right? So that's not that crazy either. Yeah, that's yeah. Normally, it's about five times the protein cost is what we look at right. to yeah. make a six percent profit. So uh, anyway. Yeah, salmon's going to be expensive, but it's not as pricey as it was last year. Okay. Oddly. Well, that's Bigger harvest. Something we look forward to. Uh, let's talk about making French fries at home. On Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Here we go. It's time to talk French fries. We happen to have a French expert in the house. It's the chef in the chapeau, <laughs> Chef Terry Rotorot. And um, here's a question I have for you, Terry. This is Tom Douglas as we talk about French fries. Um, are they really, did they really start in France or is that an American thing? You know what? I wish I could tell you the truth. I have no idea if it started I've, with us or not. I, I have a funny feeling that the French fries started with the British. I have a funny for feeling that they came back from one of the big wars that somebody had yeah. them in some bistro or some cafe somewhere and that's where they came from. But I don't know. Um, yeah, Pamela, our I, I producer, would... is really good at looking things up on Google, so we're going to find out before the well, end it, of this segment. I know for sure that the potatoes are not originally from France, so yeah. um, like you said, it was brought in from somebody at some time, and I have a funny feeling that if it's fried, probably came, you know, I think the British were the, the, the king of frying different things, mm-hmm. fish and fries, and 
I don't know. I have I a know. funny feeling it would be originating from that. But okay, how do you make a good French fry at home then? So the the good French fries at home is the same one that we make in the restaurant, which is you gotta get a good potato. You so we use um, Yukon Gold, or we use Russets. Depends on the time of the year. So the Yukon Gold is only good for me to use when it's early in the season. It's got lots of moisture in it. In that time of the year, that's when I can use it for French fries. As we move on towards the winter and the beginning, the end of winter, I definitely stick to the russets because russets have a little bit higher water content for some reason. They stay a little bit moist, a little bit longer. What I'm talking about and referring to is the amount of sugar that gets concentrated in the potato that browns your fries before they are actually are cooked. Or crisp, yeah. <laughs> or crisp, yeah. So... Um, you know, obviously this time of year when the new potato are going to start coming out, this is the best time of the year during the summer, the fall. And then as they get stored away and, you know, the water evaporates, it becomes more sugary and, and fries darker. Knowing all this, you buy a different type of potato, but the russet is a good potato to, to start. It's easy to find in the market. Uh, just make sure you buy firm, firm potatoes because that's important too. You don't want a mushy, you don't want a soft potato. Anyway, peeled And then cut. If you're doing it by hand, try to not go too thick. You don't want potatoes that are big fries. I like my, my uh, batonet to be about a half an inch by half an inch square. And about... Even you know, that's you pretty big. About, Even that is pretty big. Yeah, but I mean, if you're using a knife at home. I'm not expecting people to make a, you know, a julienne of potato. You know, that's not going to work. So, um, But if you have a, a, a cutter, if you have a fries maker... You know, a quarter inch is definitely a good size for a French fries. Mm -hmm. So you take your potatoes, you peel them, you cut them. Then you rinse them off on the cold water until the starch is pretty much gone. Now, the reason you do this is because you don't want that starch to caramelize. Again, back to the browning session. You don't want that, that, that uh, starch to caramelize and burn your fries or be too dark before your fries are cooked. So the next step is to dry your potatoes after they've been washed. Dry them up. And then uh, get a fryer about 300-310 degrees, plunge your french fries in there, and then you do what's called a poaching. Usually that takes about two minutes max in that oil, and then you lift it up, and then you let it drain, put it on the side on the sheet pan, let it, let it drain really well, and most importantly, let it cool up fast. Try to be gentle and move the potatoes around so they don't break, and uh, get your fryer to be at 350 <clears throat> yeah, we uh, we actually put them in the freezer at that point sometimes right. and, and, and freeze that oil right into them. That gets commonly done, yes. After uh, blanching. You can, you can definitely do that. But in this case, if you're at home, you can turn on your heat under your fryer, get reach 350. Once you reach 350, put your French fries back in there. And then now you're frying your potatoes. You're frying your French fries. What's your oil of choice? Um, I use a canola slash uh, vegetable oil blend. Yeah, I'm a and, peanut oil guy. I like that little extra bump of flavor. Yeah. yeah. I don't use peanut in a restaurant because, yeah. as you know, there's too many chances of allergies. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's easier to just not have to um, – because you, you would private people from that. Yeah, so. exactly. So, but anyway, uh, canola slash vegetable oil is a good combination for me. It works well. Uh, obviously, if you have duck fat, we've done that before. That is extremely delicious. Beef tallow. Um, beef tallow, uh, chicken fat, you know, whatever you have. 
in a house that can fry, it's always a good idea to add that to your oil. Can I? Yeah, I was um, going to say that's just an addition, right? If you have a pot with a quart of, of of the canola oil in it, you don't need more than a tablespoon or two of duck fat in there to give oh, you just yeah, that yeah. little essence of the umami that comes from those kind of animal fats. Correct. Yeah. yeah, one of the most common one used for me is you know I always have that that old jar of bon maman jam on the on the counter with the, uh, bacon fat, all mm-hmm. the fat rendered. And you take a couple of spoons of that and you put it in your fryer, and that will totally enhance the flavor and yeah. give that little bacony flavor. Um, but Wait, anyway, what did you call that little jar of fat? It's the it's the banami, it's the, it's bon- the jelly jar, basically. Oh 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 oh! Uh, yeah. bra- bon, you know, the bon, the bon maman, the bon yeah, maman yeah, jars. Okay, the jam, the jam is obviously gone, but the jar is still here. So I use that. He to threw away the jam and can save the bacon fat. I thought it was the name of your blended fat. <laughs> okay, so funny. now we're out of the fryer from the second fry at a higher temperature, three fifty. We're back out of the fryer. Yeah. And to me, this is where things go awry again, because everyone wants to put their French fries right on the paper towels. And to me, if you want a nice, no. cris- crispy French fry, that's you don't want to do that. I, I mean, people are scared. Of, if you're scared of grease, do not make French fries. Yeah. If you're scared of grease, stay away from the fryer. Number yeah. one. Yeah. I mean, you can't make what it's not. You know, you, you can't you can't have no grease if you're frying something. It's that's like, what I say to people about egg foo young. If you're on a diet, this isn't the dish for you. Don't try to make no. a locale. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Don't change the dish. Just don't eat the dish. Eat something else. Yeah. There's plenty There's plenty of food in there. Anyway, the French fries, um, you take them out of the fryer hot, and you throw them. I put them in a bowl, big bowl, like a big salad bowl. Mm-hmm. And then I put salt and pepper, ground pepper and salt. And then I toss the whole thing around, and then I serve it right away. Yeah. French fries are meant to be served hot. I mean, blistering hot. Bolstering hot. Right out of because the fryer. By, yeah. Because by the time you finish to put them in the dish, put them on the table and start picking them, they already have gone down in temperature. Mm-hmm. And by the time you get to the bottom of the bowl, you've, you've, we've all had cold French fries. There's nothing attractive about cold French fries except you're just eating it because it's there. Right. But it's nothing to do with the first one you add that was nice and hot and crispy. You know, and, when, when we uh, opened Seatown down in the market area that, down there, uh, we found that the French fry we could not keep the French fries hot, you know, because we were right. serving only outside, and we just couldn't keep mm-hmm. them hot enough. So we went to tater tots instead, which are molten little lava bombs that stay hot for a right. long time, no matter what the weather. Exactly. Even the, even in midwinter, they stayed hot. So uh, uh-huh. we chose the better path for us to get to a hot fried potato. Right. Yeah, just like I didn't want to do fries to go for so long because. I just, I just find like it's such a, a, it's such a completely different beast by the time you get to it. You know, it's like you put French fries in the box. By the time you get to it, 15 minutes later, this is not even what we started with. But I will you know, say, complete- to wrap up this conversation, though, because uh, you're such a hater on the Dick's fries, which I like for what they are. <laughs> I mean, talk about, a, uh, talk about a non-crisp French fry right there. Yeah, uh, no but kidding. I like them for what they are. I mean, that, that's, they're intended to be what they are, but it's, it's, definitely, not it's a ter- t- definitely not a teary fry. So. No, no, I'm sorry. I, I rather pass than having that. So Yeah. Yeah, I've never passed a French fry in my life. But so I would recommend people to make fries at home at least once and try it. It's a very, um, I think it's very rewarding to have your own made French fries. Yeah. And it's also very delicious when you can have a fry right out of the fryer 
and warm and, you know. Yeah, and I will say there's some really good versions in the freezer department of pre-fried that all you have to do is kind of freshly fry um, in your house. Mm -hmm. So just like a good tortilla chip. Uh, Up next, Fast Penny Spirits from Queen Anne, uh, or on Queen Anne, makes two styles of Amaro from fascinating ingredients. Owners Holly and Jamie are going to come join us here at the Hot Stove on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. We are back in the Hot Stove Kitchen on Cairo Radio. Uh, my name is Tom Douglas. I'm joined by the chef in the chapeau. Thierry Rosero, the chef in the hat here in Madison Valley. Thank you for coming in today, chef. As, uh, as always, it's a pleasure to hang out with you for a couple hours each week. Uh, I miss you Absolutely. here in the studio. Hopefully, uh, at some point, you're going to get back over here. And, soon. Yeah, soon, I hope. That would be awesome. All right. Uh, we have the folks from Fast Penny Spirits on Queen Anne. Uh, here today to talk about making Amaro. They've got two styles, and there's from, uh, as we learned in the break, uh, from fascinating ingredients. Owners Holly and Jamie are coming here to the hot stove. Holly's here now. Jamie's on her way, but we needed to get started. So tell us about your company, about your brand name, and and uh, what is an Amaro? You know, Amaro is just Italian for the word bitter, mm-hmm. um, and it is a lovely liqueur, which sometimes scares people. It has a little sugar in there. Uh-huh. Um, it's always a beautiful combination of botanicals. We make two different varieties. Uh, we have the Americana Bianca, which is a lighter style, and then the Americano, just straight up darker toasted sugars. More like Fernet Branca or something like that? Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And we have really tried to uh, straddle the line between innovation and sustainability while also looking to the past and what Italian uh, Amari makers have, have created over generations. Mm-hmm. So we're using a lot of those older methods in, in our production. So give us an idea what that looks like. Because you said, uh, when I said it was a distilled spirit, you quickly said, mm, not really, it's more macerated. So we, so traditionally, Amaro is created by the excess wine on properties for families. It's a kind of a family liqueur legacy if you will Uh Um, and they use the excess wine they distill that into a high proof grape spirit and then they'll macerate it with botanicals from the property and that's just you know winemakers in Italy and beyond have created that for Mm -hmm. generations Um, what we've done is is we go ahead so is it like a grappa to start I mean distilled grape is basically like a grappa right it's not necessarily a grappa a grappa is much higher proof um, right, right. And this is Smith down to 30%. So we um, start with a high-proof spirit, a high-proof grape spirit. We use West Coast grapes. We have a, we're working with a distillery mm-hmm. out of Northern California that basically upcycles wine for us, mm-hmm. um, not using chemical correction methods. They're using an alternative method that they have patented, which is amazing. And um, we macerate that for a few weeks with over 45 different botanicals, um, blend, add sugar, filter with a lovely lenticular filter that leaves all the good things behind mm-hmm. and keeps the spirit nice and clean. And, yeah. And so here we are. We got this big vat of this <laughs> this neutral spirit, essentially, that from made from grapes. And then you are just uh, blending away with uh, ingredients like what? I mean, uh, is it literally seeds or is it fennel fronds or i mean do you use any sort of fresh ingredients or how does it work 
We like using dried ingredients. They are going into a very high-proofed spirit. Um, so, you know, we use a beautiful saffron uh, from saffron from uh, Chelan County. Um, we use a blend of local Pacific Northwest and then the best, you know, pieces that we can get from around the world as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we have some cascara that's coming from Stampback Coffee over in Ballard. That, um, Is that of, the chafe? It's the chafe, yeah. yeah. It mm-hmm. offers, it kind of double dips for the farmers. They can not only get paid for the bean, but then they get paid for the husk as well. Mm-hmm. And it has a really beautiful hibiscus flavor. Um, we have cocoa nibs from Theo in there. We have some um, really nice green, fresh, well, they're dried, but like marjoram, thyme, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of thing. And you said that you also get some byproduct from the distilling process uh, that... Uh, you used to be part of uh, the big the big gin group, right? Uh, or maybe you're still part of it. I don't know. But the byproduct of the big gin group? No, no, no. I thought you said that you. When I asked, was it a distilled spirit? You said you use some byproducts from that process. So we use the upcycled grape spirit. Oh, okay. So that's the byproduct you were talking about. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And that's from that's from Northern California Distillery. Okay. All right. I get it. We are next door to Big Gin. Oh, are you yes. down there on Elliott? Yes, we are next door. So we're. Uh, Tucked into the coastal transportation shipyard mm-hmm. um, on the Queen Anne side of the Ballard Bridge there. Um, and we share a giant warehouse-type building. Um, Big Gin is on one side. We have a chai maker kind of in the middle. And then we are on the other side. And then there is a welding facility that is also there. <laughs> welding facility. Adds another essence. Yeah. And Holy Holy Mountain uh, Brewery is right in that area, too. And, Holy and Mountain. a fencing a fencing studio so that's a little further up elliot but yes batch 206 and holy mountain and the fencing studio that my daughter has attended are all over there isn't that funny (laughs) i mean people that's part of elliot i think is like a a mystery to some people because yeah yeah, you just never know jamie has joined us your partner in this project hi jamie hello what's your role in this uh in this world uh well i tend to be the master blender so figuring out the recipe Figuring out the proce- production process. Mm-hmm. This morning, I was just filtering our Americanos, which put me a little bit late. Um, We're blaming the Ballard Bridge, though. And, oh, okay. And the Ballard Bridge. That's always an easy one to blame. <laughs> oh, the bridge is up. Can't, can't make it. Yeah. It's a very good one to blame. Yeah. Holly said it well. Like, we learned... I went to a few different Amaro distilleries in Italy, and... Um, and learn from them kind of the way to create a consistent Amaro. And one of the big uh, learnings was to use dried, dried product. Uh-huh. And so I think it's perfectly fine to use fresh, but if you want to maintain consistency and scale, I think the dried is more predictable. Mm, interesting. The, what's your favorite yeah, of all these? Be... 45 ingredients. What's your favorite? Oh, over 45. Over 45. Uh, black truffle, for sure. That We have a lot of that in there. Um, so, And we get that um, hunted locally by Truffle Dog Company. So when you're, make, when you're making this, you're saying dry versus fresh. Is, because, is it because fresh leaves a lot of oil and lots of uh, disturbs the, the, the the cleanliness of the of the product or is it it's because it's, it's big, inconsistent it's the consistency and concentration really you don't know how much right. water 
that you don't know how much water is in um, the fresh ingredients. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that could dilute or concentrate your brew. I think the the oils are all still there. You know, they are. they're just concentrated. Mm-hmm. A lot of like orange oil, um, right. is is amazing, and that definitely adds the lemon peel oils. Mm-hmm. Use a bitter orange peel from Sevilla. I would love to find that orange peel because the stuff that I use for my spice rub just I want it to have a little bit more essence than the dried orange peel I can buy through spice companies and things like that. So well, we you have a little extra. We got, <laughs> you have, you extra? have to you have to import an entire palette. Uh, oh, really? And we work yeah. with this special broker that actually uh, Ben with Big Gin Ben found him uh-huh. at Big Gin, so it's the same orange peel. Um, in the same broker. Isn't that interesting? We'll, we'll drop some off. For there you, you go. Now I have yeah. to grind it too. I'm my guess. Yeah. Yeah. They're big ribbons. Right. So how do people drink Amaro's? I mean, I've my wife is a big fan of Amaro's. I, I'm not so much. They're a little too. Most of them are a little too sweet for me, considering that they're a bitter supposed to be like a bitter cocktail. Are they always an aperitif, or sometimes you hear of like Fernet Branca being a digestive? You know, maybe something you take a shot of after dinner. Uh, how do you all drink uh, Amaro's? We drink them both, um, we, and we drink them neat on the rocks with peels. Um, we also drink them in cocktails. The Bianca is really nice aperitif mm-hmm. uh, style, and the Americano is a really nice digestive Steve. Mm-hmm. So you'll do, do them both ways. We've been yeah. doing a ton of spritzes this season, yep. which is super fun yeah. if you are up for having folks over to just set out a bunch of herbs and citrus um, you can do either one as a spritz, and it's just a couple ounces of that of that delicious Americano. And so it's Americano club soda or yep. something, or soda water, mm-hmm. and then like, whatever herbs you happen to have around? Yeah, like yeah. lemon peel, uh, orange peel, thyme, mint, that sort of thing. Big wine glass, ice, and then top with your Prosecco or Cava. Right, and do you model them or not? No. No, because no. you want that clean look, right? Keep it easy. Keep yeah. it easy. Pamela, do you have a favorite way to have your Amaros? I'm a spritz kind of girl. You're a spritz kind of girl. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Cubes, something pretty. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. A little blossom of sorts. <laughs> maybe an arugula blossom. Or maybe of. even one of these little allium sprigs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That would, make be, it great. That would be Make lovely it savory. There too. So beautiful. The, the Bianca is also delightful if you want to do a Negroni riff. Mm-hmm. And then with the, with the Americano, you can do an Americano Manhattan. Ah, yes. instead of sweet vermouth. I was going to say, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say that's a good, that's a good Manhattan right there. Delightful. Mm-hmm. All right, Holly and Jamie are going to join us here for our food for thought tasty trivia challenge coming up next. Uh, uh, Pamela, uh, have you rigged this contest? Of course. Or do we have a shot at winning today? <laughs> uh, I, oh, it looks like we're going to be. I said we're going to be burned again, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> I've mixed it up so you all have a fair chance. All right. Uh, this is Tom and Terry. We're in the Hot Stove Society kitchen on Cairo Radio, 97.3 FM. We are back in the Hot Stove kitchen. It's Chef Tom Douglas. And Terry Rotary Roll, the chef in the hat. And our friends from Fast Penny Spirits have stayed with us, uh, Holly and Jamie. And, you know, we've forgotten the last segment to tell people how they can come visit you at your, at your shop. Definitely. We host very regular pop-ups on Fridays and Saturdays. And whether or not we have a pop-up, we are still open Friday from 4 to 8 and Saturday from 11 to 2. We do a little evening cocktail feature. Lots of Amaro education is happening down there, how to use Amaro delightfully. 
Lovely. So get down there and check them out down on Elliott Avenue here in, on the west side of the Queen Anne Hill there on uh, Elliott. So it's time for Food for Thought Tasty Trivia. Uh, rub with Love Tasty Trivia. It's a small batch, versatile rubs, sauces, and mustards that bring extra layers of flavor to just about any meal. We make them right there in Ballard at 52nd and 14th Northwest. Look for them in your local grocery store, a specialty shop, or find them online, Bartels, Amazon, you name it. Uh, you can find our rubs just about anywhere, except for right now, because we're in short supply. Bummer. Bummer, man. Uh, Pamela, today our prize is, and how do we play this game? Uh, our prize from Rub with Love is a delicious exotic mushroom rub, a blend of porcini and herbs, a jar of the Bengal masala, because we know you're going to want to eat some spring lamb, and our new recipe, ginger pineapple teriyaki sauce, after a minor change that made the sauces now gluten-free. Yeah. Yeah. A little tamari instead of soy sauce. And our winner today that's going to get that great package is Gail Schreiber, because she loved the cheese segment and was inspired to make a dish from her heritage. So, nice. yay, Gail. Uh, the game is played by the contestants, each getting five questions. Terry likes to go first. The loser has to pay the shipping of the prize for the package. So, so it's, we'd it's, like it's, to see your wallets right down. Make sure that you have the $7.50 it's going to take to ship. There's no credit here. There's no credit around here. Oh, we have a UPS account. <laughs> oh, good guess to have. All right. uh, we're starting... Uh, with Mr. Rotoro, and this is from the earlier yes. segment. Where did French fries originate from? What oh, no. country? You, you, she went and looked it up. You actually, you Googled that up? Oh, that's funny. Okay, I'm going to say uh, it's between England and Belgium. I'm going to go England. It was Belgium. Belgium. That's, oh, that's a good he, guess, yeah. Does he win? Nice job, Thierry. Yes. How cool. should you... Harvest morels with a knife and cut the stem. Never pull the stem out of the ground for any mushroom, by the way. That is the, the brilliant answer. Wow, and two the for two. Is, two for two. The reason is you want the morel to come back next year. If you are a savage tourist in the woods and pull mushroom out of the ground with their roots out, you are killing the mushroom. You're a and savage. No will come back. You're a savage. You're an animal. <laughs> Number three, when was cocaine removed from the famous soft drink Coca-Cola? Probably with the Reagan year when they were trying to go. Uh, <laughs> so I would say it 1981. Was, when, they made toma- <laughs> when they made ketchup a vegetable. <laughs> it, it was 1929. <laughs> In New Orleans, the classic bread pudding, what liquor is poured on top? Bourbon. Correct. And finally, the name... Oh, this is a gimme. The name for this popular dessert stems from the French word from froth or foam. Mousse. Yes. Wow, four for five. Nice job, chef. We're going to take these ladies down. All right, Holly and Jamie, thank you for coming. uh, They've never been here. We're not being nice. Welcome to the show. We're starting with a hard one. Peas have a lot, because we did a fresh pea segment. Uh, Peas have a lot of vitamins. Which vitamin is it? And similar to what you find in apples. It's the same one as in apples. Isn't that pea? Vitamin P? (laughs) (laughs) Vitamin A? C. C. 
I was going to say, that was a tough one. <laughs> I was going to say niacin. <laughs> Define a Barolo Quinato. You must have learned those when you were uh, studying Amaro. Oh, boy. Yeah. Uh, uh, an Italian <laughs> varietal. It's what northern Italian Italian yeah. varietal. Yep. Um, Flavored it with. It's it's on the sweeter side, yeah. Yep. And so it's fortified dessert type wine. And the uh, signature. Fumbling here. It, yeah. it has a signature flavor from Kinchona bark. Ah. Oh. <laughs> so it's Barolo that's been uh, distilled. And, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which fast food restaurant still boards the slogan, have it your way? I don't eat fast food. <laughs> Burger King. Nice. <laughs> and drinks, I don't have a TV. <laughs> You're un-American. Yeah. I know how to harvest morels correctly, though. No wonder why you make a morel. <laughs> oh, Jack Daniels whiskey is made in which U.S. state? Tennessee. Yeah, uh, roaring back. And hey, so what was the answer? What was the answer to the to the restaurant? To what Burger, Burger King. King. Burger King. Which popular cocktail is known to be served in a copper mug? The Mule. Oh, yes, yes indeed. Winner, winner. The most stealed item Three. at the bar. Yes, yes. stolen. Stolen. <laughs> stolen. It might be made of steel. No, that was supposed All right. to be funny. That Did it? you keep track? Yeah. I think they got uh, two out of five. Out of five. Oh. <laughs> Three. 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 All right, Tom Douglas. What does the term amaro derive from? Amaretto. Oh. Made from almonds, <laughs> and uh, people just couldn't say the whole word. School them, Holly. <laughs> you asked me this question at the beginning of the segment, and I told you. Okay, I wasn't bitter. listening. Thank you were not listening. Okay, what is it? It's bitter. Yeah, she bitter. said bitter. Oh, Italian. it just said bitter. Oh. So their score just went I up. I thought that was Sagra de Radicchio. Yours just went down. Okay, fine. I'm minus one. How many herbs and spices are in Colonel Harlan Sanders' original KFC recipe? Uh, Eleven. Oh, 17. You, you said that so casually. It was 11. Oh, okay, good. Stay oh. with it when you're right. What's the la- largest selling vodka brand in the world? Smirnoff. How did you know that? Uh, just because I'm a brilliant uh, vodka person. I don't even drink it. Which U.S. state is the only state to grow coffee beans? Hawaii. Damn. We got to get some harder ones for you. All right. Which You know why that is? Because you can only grow coffee beans within 10 degrees of the equator. Just like cacao. You should know that. I should know that. Which distinct ingredient is used in Italian cheesecakes? In Italian cheesecakes. Well, I know that they use a lot of anise, so I'm just going to go with anise. The real answer is ricotta. Oh. I should have gone with my instinct on that. Wait, maybe I misunderstood the question. What did you say it was? Which distinct ingredient is used in Italian cheesecakes? Ah, Ah. I thought the cheese part was already taken care of. I was trying to add (laughs) to the cheese part. I was thinking about it. There we go. All right. uh, That was sure fun, losing (laughs) losing that. I get to not only buy the prize, but the shipping. I'm super super happy about that. Thank you, Pamela. I'm glad you're on our team. Uh, If you want to be part of the show, you can join the community on Facebook uh, live at Hot Stove Society Radio Show on Fridays from 9 to 11. Or you can listen uh, on your favorite podcast or online at Cairo 97.3. 
FM. If you ever want to be part of the show, you can join the community on Facebook Live or send us a, a text uh, or an email to our Hot Stove Society show uh, email, and uh, maybe you can ask a question that we'll use on the air. You're listening to us on Cairo Radio, 97.3 FM. The show is produced by Pamela Hinckley. Uh, also, Sean McFadden is on our technical side, and our editor and sound man, Sean, don't call me Del Torre. Also, remember, if you miss any episode of our Hot Stove Society show on Cairo 97.3, you can listen via podcast. Just subscribe with your favorite app. Thanks for listening and have a fabulous weekend.